Hello and welcome to the St. Ellen's podcast. I'm Natalie May. And I'm Simon Carley. And today we're going to have a quick look through the posts that we've uh, published this month in November and talk about a little bit about what we thought about them. So this is something we're trying to do on a regular basis to bring you the best of the blog on a monthly basis, really to give you the highlights. Now, we're not going to give you everything that you need to know, everything that you need to read, everything that you can learn. If you want to do that, then go to the blog site and read the stuff or listen to some of the other podcasts. But actually, if you're like me, you're pretty limited for time and just spending a little 5, 10, 15 minutes in the car listening to the highlights is probably a good thing to do. And if you're one of those people who reads all the stuff we publish anyway, hopefully this will act as a little bit of spaced repetition and just embed some of those important messages. Okay, so where do you want to start, Natalie? What's um, been picking your mind this month? Well, right back in the 3rd of November, Laura published a fantastic post about triage in the emergency department. Yeah, now this is something which we've been thinking about for a long period of time. And I think Laura's encapsulated the major issues that I've always had with triage. You could take triage right back to the beginning and you're going Baron Dominique Jean Larry, the French guy who was doing the triage on the battlefields of France. And it was all about ordering people into priorities. And kind of we get that and we talk about it in major incidents and we talk about it in our emergency departments. But there's a real fundamental question that people sometimes don't really realise is what are we doing the triage for? I mean, sorting people into different categories about how sick they are. Yeah, I get that. It makes a lot of sense. But what's the point? And when we did a lot of major incident research, we came up against this and we realised that the point of triage, if it's going to be really, truly effective, is it picks out those patients for whom you can do something about. So it's not just how sick you are, it's what do they need? I think that's a really key question. Uh, this whole post resonated with me from thinking about paediatric major trauma, because there's a great TARN paper that's been published previously that had looked at sensitivity and specificity of paediatric major trauma triage tools. And there are none that kind of find that spot of recognising the most seriously injured kids, but ruling out serious injuries in a, a significant amount. There's the, the playoff between sensitivity and specificity just isn't there. And Laura brought lots of other evidence to that and, and illustrated that that's actually true across the board. So I give you an example. If somebody's very, very unwell, say, say take a major instance scenario when you are trying to triage people and do comparators. If somebody's got such severe injuries that they're not going to survive, should they be a P1? Because actually there might be somebody else who's got a relatively minor injury but with a very brief intervention, you could prevent that becoming much worse. So, for instance, if somebody puts, you know, somebody obstructs your airway right now at this moment in time, you don't yet have much of an injury, but a very simple intervention could make you much better. So to me, that's a P1. It's a really sick patient who's about to become very sick and I've got a quick intervention that I can do something about. If somebody's got a massive brain injury and they've got no chance of survival, yes, they may be physiologically abnormal and score, but is that truly the patient that we want to go to first? I think it's really complex. Laura brought in some really good points about the sort of patient-centeredness of that discriminator. And her point was that although we might want to know those patients we can do something about, we kind of need that diagnostic angle in there as well. And is it fair of us to expect a triage system to be able to diagnose patients? Her, her great example was about breathlessness. Should we expect triage to be able to discriminate between attention pneumothorax and a panic attack in the first instance when actually the symptoms might be really similar. We come from Manchester and many people will be familiar with the Manchester triage system, the MTS. And there's lots of papers out there looking at the MTS or looking at many other different scores, to be honest. And they use them to say, does the MTS predict 
admission to coronary care or to critical care or does it predict sepsis? Well, no, it was never designed to do so. Triage scores should be about predicting who needs to be seen and dealt with next. That's not the same as a diagnosis. I think that's incredibly important. So what was the bottom line from Laura's article? (laughs) Frustratingly, there is no bottom line. There's no simple answer for this. And that's really important. When you're looking at a triage score, I think you should be assessing a triage score on what it was designed to do. So if you've designed a triage score to divide people up over a major incident to do the most for the most, that should be how you measure it. If you've designed a triage score to de- predict whether people are going to go to ICU, fine, measure it against that. But please don't try and compare apples with oranges. Very wise. So let's move on to a post that you wrote. Uh, it was a journal club post uh, about a paper from resuscitation in October looking at whether patients without ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction following out-hospital cardiac arrest should go straight to the cath lab. So there's some baggage I've got with this, and I'm sure many of my colleagues will have done as well, in that we see people who come in from cardiac arrest in the community and we resuscitate them, or even better, they've been resuscitated by our paramedic colleagues pre-hospital. They arrive in the ED, we start managing our ABCs, and of course the ECG is a great tool for working out what's going on. And in some patients, if they've got an ST elevation MI, or if they're post-VF cardiac arrest, there's really good agreement now that these patients should be stabilised as best as possible, move to the cath lab and look for a culprit lesion and treat it. I I don't think there's any debate about that. The difficult ones are when they come in and they've got either a normal ECG or an ECG with some mild ischemic changes. And that group, there is a debate. There's a debate locally, there's a debate nationally, there's a debate internationally about whether or not we should just take them to the cath lab. And I don't know what you're doing out in your part of the world at the moment, Natalie. Um, it's kind of variable, actually. And we we have reasonable success at getting patients to the cath lab if we want them to. There's quite good support in the emergency departments I have been working at. We've also had some good pickups from out-of-hospital arrest secondary to subarachnoid hemorrhage. But that that was kind of a, a clinician instinct, if you will, that I'd said, actually, hang on a minute, I think the history that comes with that is not particularly cardiac sounding. So the support is there for us, but and we ha- I didn't have to push for it when I've needed it quite as much as I have in other places. That said, um, we're also in Sydney at the moment recruiting to the uh, two-cheer trial. Just a little bit of background about that study. That's a, a study looking at Lucas device for VF arrest out of hospital and then getting them straight to the ED in the centre of Sydney and they go on to ECMO. And from there, all of those patients are going to the cath lab. We've just published a post over at Sydney HEMS about some of the ECMO work that's going on in Sydney. And interestingly, Sean Scott, in his talk about the two-tier trial and the processes involved in it, was saying that if there's, if there's a possibility of subarachnoid hemorrhage, those patients don't get a scan often for 48 hours. They will have gone to the cath lab first. So I think the emphasis in Australia is a little bit more towards going to the cath lab. That's not to say that all patients from our hospital cardiac arrests are going to the cath lab. But I found it easier here to get the patients that I think need to go there to go there. OK, well, we're not in that position here. So I thought this was a really interesting paper. It is a meta-analysis. So it's a review of other trials. And of course, in a meta-analysis, the quality is very much based on the tools that you've got in front of you. I.e., What's the quality of the paper that you put into the meta-analysis? And I think rather disappointingly, there's not that many papers and only one of them is an RCT. And lots of them are kind of you know, cohort studies with huge amounts of bias and potential um, issues around whether or not there's been patient selection about who did or who did not go for angiography. And 
I mean, the results of the meta-analysis are interesting. That would suggest that there's quite a significant benefit. So death rates difference 19.6% versus 35.6%. You think, oh my gosh, we definitely should take these patients to the cath lab. But I'm still not sure. I think we do have to have some selection about which patients we take. There are clearly some patients who I think this is probably not a plumbing problem. This is probably an electrical problem. And maybe sending them to the cath lab straight away isn't a good idea. The neurological ones, I agree, not a pro- is, is an issue. I don't think we have the data there yet. What this has enabled me to do is to give me a little bit of evidence when I've got a patient who I generally do think has got a plumbing problem with the heart. They do need to go to the cath lab. I can have a more informed conversation with my, to be honest, generally very receptive cardiology colleagues. So should non-ST elevation return of spontaneous circulation patients go to the cath lab? Absolutely. Sometimes. Probably. But not always. Think. Think, 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 think. When you see the patient in front of you, think about what the probable causes are and have a conversation with a sensible cardiologist and make the right decision for your patient. Okay, so you are involved in something very exciting, which we talked about on the blog this month, which is some shenanigans which are planned for Cape Town next year. So this is a combination of two conferences which are coming up, which we're both part of. So um, with the risk of advertising and, you know, we don't have any pecuniary interest in this. What's going on in Cape Town next year? Well, there's the fantastic Bad EM Fest run by our friends over at Brave African Discussions in Emergency Medicine. They've put together this fantastic residential conference where everyone's going to come and stay together and spend time together and discuss the issues that are relevant to them in emergency medicine. And it sounds like there's people coming from all over the world. Hopefully there'll be a really strong South African presence there as well and the rest of Africa. The programme looks fantastic and these guys are really visionary. I think this is going to be an absolutely fantastic conference. I think the idea of living together, learning together, sharing together, a lot of group work, a lot of small workshops, a lot of sharing of stories and narratives is... I can see that as a development in the way that conferences have changed over the last 10 years from the idea that you just got some guy, and it usually is a guy, stuck on the stage telling you what they want to know, to now much more participatory conferences where everybody's there to learn and share and and engage with the knowledge. And actually, I quite like the word, and, word, and I've nicked it from somebody else called Julian Stodd, this idea of co-created conferences. So the actual output of that conference won't be decided before the day it starts. It'll actually be created by the participants and the tutors as it goes on. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's there's definitely something to be said for this process of being together. And it's almost a, an embodiment of the flattened hierarchy that's existed in the foam community on Twitter for the last couple of years, that people can just bring whatever it is that they have, their experiences, their knowledge, and share it and test it out with other people. And I think that's really powerful and potentially a really good learning tool. And speaking of learning tools, right before that again, we've got the first incarnation of the teaching cooperative, formerly known as the teaching course. So if you're into medical education and you're coming to Bad EM, consider tacking some education awesomeness on for the couple of days beforehand and that's in cape town which is if you've not been i've got to say i've fallen in love with south africa it is a beautiful place there are so many exciting things to do out there and the quality of the course and the quality of the people teaching on that course apart from us two obviously um is exceptional okay so back to reality back to talking about the the medical stuff which is probably why people are here um, you've been talking, we mentioned it briefly, didn't we? We've been talking about subarachnoid hemorrhage this month. And again, another journal club, another paper which has come out, which might help us manage this really rather difficult group of patients, the, the severe headaches who turn up in the ED. Yeah, so there's been a, a whole load of work that's come out of Ottawa around subarachnoid hemorrhage decision rules. And this latest paper that was in 
Canadian Medical Association journal in November was the validation of the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule. And that's something we looked at in my institution. In Australia currently, if you don't get your scan within six hours of the onset of your headache and we think you've got a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you are admitted under the emergency physicians onto our observation ward and we will do your lumbar puncture. And I've had a look at the numbers of patients that we've done that for in the department. And actually, we didn't pick up in three months any additional subarachnoid hemorrhages through that. So we're quite interested in pairing that number down a little bit. And there are some issues with this rule. Ryan Redecki over at EM Lit of Note has done a fantastic review in, in which he said it much better and much more, much less diplomatically than I as a British person would say, in saying that the, the route to 100% sensitivity of their decision rule is you have to evaluate everybody, which means that the specificity is pretty terrible. Um, so there are some very sensible things in their rule that are going to make you think about subarachnoid hemorrhage if they're older patients, neck pain or stiffness, witness loss of consciousness, onset during exercise, thunderclap headache, uh, and limited neck flexion on examination. I think they're all clinical things that would make us think that this headache represented a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And for me, the interesting thing was from my work looking at our, our patients was we're really bad at documenting what we mean by a, a thunderclap headache. In the wider text of the paper, they talked specifically about headache reaching maximum intensity within one hour. And I really struggled to find us documenting that clearly in our notes. Uh, I think that that was my main take home from reading this paper and then looking at our patient group was we need to be better at documenting what we mean. I don't think that we need to necessarily investigate everybody for headaches and everybody should have a scan and everybody should have a lumbar puncture. And I'm not sure that this rule is exactly the answer to our diagnostic conundrums. But I think we do need to be better at thinking about it. And I think we need to be better at documenting. One of the things I've always found with the subarachnoid hemorrhage group is it's a diagnosis that we're very fearful for. So we're in pursuit of this very, very high sensitivity in the rules. And actually, there has to be a point when we just have to say, well, I can't investigate this any further because I will actually cause harm. We see this in lots of other conditions as well. The question that I've not seen answered really here is this issue about whether we're looking at you know severe subarachnoid hemorrhages potentially being missed or whether they're just low pressure venous bleeds or they're, they're non-consequential bleeds that might be missed. In the pursuit of 100%, you're going to bring all of that in as well. And that might mean that you end up over-investigating this group of patients. I think it's really tricky. You, you talked about the specificity in this. The specificity on this rule is 13.6%, which is, what can I say? unenticing. And exactly as you've said, they included in the positive diagnostic group, so the people that they were determining who had subarachnoid hemorrhage, a lot of patients who actually didn't have any intervention. They said, oh yeah, there is a subarachnoid hemorrhage, but we don't need to do anything about that. And I kind of wonder, yeah, that's it's good to know for sort of ongoing risk stratification, but is it worth putting all the other patients through this process I don't know the answer. No, it's a tricky one. And it may depend on what your local policies are, what your local culture is, what your medical legal system is. And certainly speaking to my colleagues in areas of the world where we have a very strong medical legal presence, they are very, very wary of this diagnosis. And I think other parts of the world where we're a little bit more pragmatic and we're more worried about over-diagnostics and over-utilisation of healthcare services, then we have a slightly different perspective. And that, that's a very interesting way of thinking about diagnostics. So what was the bottom line? Should we use this rule in our ED? I'm not sure it's going to help us. I don't think it, it's going to change anything. I think we can reflect on the, the predictors of a positive diagnosis that the authors have identified. And if you're a junior doctor, have conversations with your seniors about this because it's not an easy area. There is no hard and fast rule. And I think we need to document very clearly. And obviously, if they're turning up with any of those symptoms within six hours and you've got 
access to a good quality CT scanner, that's going to be your first line investigation. We know that that's almost certainly sensitive enough to pick up most of those patients. Great. So we've also got some stuff from Jan Spionbe on the use of tranexamic acid. This is something which we talked about on the St. Helens blog for a long period of time. I think partly because we recruited to trials in, in Manchester and the UK and the use of tranexamic acid. Now, it is still a bit controversial out there. And OK, the evidence isn't absolutely definitive in all cases, in all systems. And I know there'll be people who object to us talking about TXA. But this is a reanalysis of trials of tranexamic acid, looking at whether the time to administration makes a difference. And the pathophysiological logic behind this is that TXA is thought to reduce the number of deaths due to bleeding. Bleeding deaths occur early, so therefore if you give it earlier, is it better? The meta-analysis, and done by a very, very good group of people who are you know very sound and have done the work extremely well, is yes, bottom line. So there does appear to be a time issue around TXA, which I guess supports the use of TXA pre-hospital for trauma patients. And that's what we've been doing in the UK for quite a long period of time now. In Sydney Hems, we don't necessarily give it to everybody. We give it to the patients we're giving blood to. And I think that has generally become my cognitive rule of application is that if I'm going to, if I think the patient's going to need a transfusion, they get tranexamic acid. I think that's right. And actually that's what was in the CRASH-2 trial. It was about patients who were thought to be bleeding. There has been a huge amount of mission creep so that anybody who has a potential for major trauma gets TXA. I think that's wrong personally. Um, I also think it's insane that sometimes you can get into trouble for not giving TXA to say a traumatic cardiac arrest patient who did receive blood but didn't actually live long enough to receive the TXA and they can be pinged and criticised for it. So there is some insanity in the system with mission creep. But the principle, I like your principle, if I'm considering giving this patient blood, if I think they're going to require a blood transfusion, then they should be a candidate for TXA. That seems to work for me. I'm on the same page. Excellent. Now, where do we go next? We published a book this month. We did. Risk, Probability and Decisions in Emergency Medicine, based on blog posts we've written over the last couple of years. And available in two formats, apparently. It is. It's um. You can buy it. Buy it. <laughs> you can buy it for nothing. It's free, as everything that we do. So the idea behind this fundamentally is that blogs are great. They get people interested. They get people thinking. But sometimes we've noticed that we 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 have themes that we do. So we have ideas which run across a whole range of blogs, and collating them in one place seems to be a good idea. So our first book is looking really right back to the beginning, back to the first SMAC conference when uh, we went out and did some talks there about probability and decision-making and uncertainty. And there's a whole series of blogs there. And then going through into your ideas around Gestalt, you've got some chapters in there as well. So it's Risk, Probability, Decisions in Emergency Medicine. You can get it from iBooks. You can get it from my page on ResearchGate, or you can just go onto the blog and download it from there. And I've got to say, it's been it's been quite successful so far. So we're talking of downloads in the thousands already. I don't know whether anybody's read it, but lots of people have downloaded it. That's quite a lot of fun. What I quite like about it is that when life gets a bit chaotic, it can be really hard to keep up with what's happening in the phone world. I Sometimes I'll admit I struggle to read every blog that we produce, let alone reading all the stuff that other people produce. So having everything together in one chunk on one topic is actually a really nice way to go back and spend a little bit of time to reflect and maybe reread some of the stuff and pick up on things that I might have thought, oh, yeah, I'll read that later the first time around. And that leads me nicely into one of your blog posts this month, which is the seventh instalment of 101 lessons from a year with Sydney Hems. So a little bit of news for us there. So that fits nicely, because what are we going to do with there's 101 lessons? What's the what's the best thing we can do with 101 lessons from Sydney Hems? 
we are going to put them into an ebook and release that very soon. Actually, it's already kind of together. I just need to do a little bit of last minute editing and I make sure there are 101. I think it's actually 103. So you can have two for free. <laughs> there may be some editing involved. Um, so that should be on everybody's Christmas list. So we'll get that out in December. And um, it's a really, again, it's a great collation of all of those blogs putting together. And I think both of these posts, both of these books, in fact, are useful to hand on to people. So if they've got an interest in Sydney Hems, then get them to have a look at this. If they've got an interest in decision making, and we all do really, then that's um, important too. And um, which, what was the major topics you covered in the episode seven? Episode seven is a kind of a strange one. It was the life lessons. It was all the stuff that didn't really fit into education or leadership or clinical staff or human factors. Things like wear sunscreen. Cancer rates in Australia are huge and I have become obsessed with wearing Factor 50 under every circumstance. But when we're out on retrieval jobs, particularly on primary missions, we might be standing directly in the sun for some time working and you just don't notice the effect of the sun on you. So yeah, please wear sunscreen. Baz Luhrmann was right. There's a reason that that song exists. I quite like the some days you'll be awesome, other days you'll fall on your bum, physically and metaphorically, I think. Yeah, I'll admit that that did happen to me. There's some quite slippery bits of rocks around and um, and not only did I fall on my bum, I had just laughed at the paramedic who'd fallen on his bum before me, although he landed more spectacularly in a puddle than I did. But yeah, you know, that's life. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I, I, I really like the fact that people seem to find this stuff interesting and useful. For me, it was it was mainly a processing of all the stuff that I was learning and keeping all my ideas and my thoughts together. So it's great if other people get something out of that too. So two more posts this month. We've been busy. Uh, one from Gareth Roberts, who's a great friend of ours, a fabulous trainee, works with us in Manchester. And he's talked about HIV screening in the ED. Now, I know this is something which is done around the world. It's done in Dublin on a regular basis. And we heard that in the comments from this blog. But should we be screening for HIV in all our patients who come through the ED? And Gareth makes a really powerful and strong argument that if you're in an area with a significant HIV population, then the answer is yes, you should. And certainly it's something we're looking at in our locality. And there are certainly other areas in the UK where it definitely should be being done on a regular basis. Yeah, I can think of hospitals in Sydney that I'm sure have much higher prevalence rates than the ones that I've been working in. But but then you can't tell. There are so many factors now affecting this population of patients who have HIV and may not know about it then perhaps we should be thinking about it. We often, as emergency physicians, have access to a patient group that other healthcare professionals don't have access to. So that's particularly young men, so late teens into early 20s. They don't go to their GP. They don't necessarily have any other interaction with healthcare. And they're a, a group who do sometimes come to the emergency department. Should we be taking more of the public health mantle on ourselves and thinking about whether there's HIV screening and other lifestyle and health screening stuff that we should be doing in order to have an impact there where the people might not be able to. So I really like this post because it, it brought a number of things to my mind. One is that we can think about our high-risk population. So you can say that in my area, I know that we're risky for this, in this case, HIV. So should we should test everybody. The second is that we can always identify a group in any population who are high at risk. And, and Gareth gives you some examples there. That, you know, if you've got a history of injecting drug use, you should be screened for HIV. So there's populations within populations. And the other thing is, and it's something we've talked about a lot on the blog, is that this link, and HIV is linked to sexual activity, it's linked to unsafe behaviours, it's linked to drug use, is that as emergency physicians, these are topics which we shouldn't be scared of, we should be very capable of taking a history about, we should be very capable of broaching those subjects with the patients. And Janos Bayombe and, and yourself and other colleagues on the blog have talked about this a lot. And certainly if you work in, in my population, 
it's an integral part of the assessment of any patient. Yeah, I often say I work in the emergency department, nothing shocks me anymore. I'm sure there's still the odd thing that takes me by surprise. But my problems with having those conversations went a long time ago. And I think it's just recognising that we have a unique position to be able to access that population group and to provide some help and support. And that's a real privilege. I've seen some data actually from my own hospital looking at the emergency department and exactly what you said about we we see a population that nobody else sees. Young women go to their GPs or to obstetricians or gynecologists for either being pregnant or getting um, a contraception. There's a big group who get seen. Men don't get seen in that same way. So they just don't engage with health professionals. They're a terrible group. We see them. And it's really important that we engage with that group. So yes, completely back you up on that. And our last post of the month was uh, Janos talking about tough times in the emergency department, asking us, are you seeing an unprecedented number of patients lately? Yes. Do you feel you're under excessive pressure because of this? Yes. Do you recently feel low as a result? No, but then again, I'm not normal. Well, that's good. Uh, and maybe you've even thought that emergency medicine is not for you anymore and con- considered leaving the specialty. It is OK. We have all had the odd day like that. So he put together some tips, some evidence based, some experience based to try to help you improve your morale and that of your team. Yeah, it's important. I'm, I'm being flippant with my comments on this sort of thing. But yeah, it is tough at the moment. And we're going into a winter where we're following the Australian flu epidemic. And it's going to be tough over here, I think. The most important thing is to recognise that and to not let the circumstances hurt you. So Janus has got some really top tips in there. And I didn't want to end on a negative because I don't think it's a negative post. I think it's accepting that times are tough, but actually there are things we can do to get through it and there are things that we can do to support each other. So I actually took a very positive vibe out of that. Yeah, I think the days where we used to tell people that, you know, you're an emergency physician, you love it when it's like this, just suck it up and get on with it. Those days are gone and we are more open to recognising that, we are affected by these stressful factors. But there's some great practical advice in there about having the right attitude, saying thank you, finding things to be positive about, being helpful to the members in your team, smiling and saying good morning, uh, and just talking about how you feel and bringing people on board with your mental model. All great, really powerful stuff. Okay, so there's a good place to end. And we're heading into December. It's pretty dark and miserable over here, probably the same way you are. Not in any way. It's currently about 25 degrees and beautiful sunshine. It's not so good over here weather-wise, but we're, we're keeping our chin up. We're looking forward to a great Christmas and the Christmas decorations are going up in Verchester. I hope you have a wonderful time. We'll probably speak to you again before Christmas. But if not, we'll catch up with everybody with a December review around about the new year. Thanks for listening. Have fun. 